Welcome to episode 80 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast to get just kind of constantly daggered at SCG Baltimore. No! <laughs> with a special focus on the SCG Tour, we are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me as always is Colin Smalling. Hey, Collins. What's up, Chris? So, Baltimore. Yeah, Baltimore. We both went. We both went. We both had fun. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you you won some matches. I won some matches, uh, <laughs> but... It, yeah. So in the team open, had a super sick team. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Myself, Lee McLeod, Michael Braverman. Uh, who, for those of you, you know, we've mentioned Lee many times on this show. For those of you who don't know Michael Braverman, mm-hmm. um, dude's been around. Dude is just like a stone cold legacy killer. Yeah, he's been playing legacy for a long, long time, and uh, in an area that really had a very robust legacy scene for a long time. Yep. Uh, the Triangle used to, in North Carolina, used to have some some legacy names that people might think back to now and, and like remember from, from kind of some of the golden days of legacy. Mm. The Braverman brothers, both Michael and Philip Braverman, were excellent. Dylan Donegan, uh, David Corson, mm-hmm. uh, Sawyer Lucy, <laughs> I really tried to scrub his name. <laughs> uh, you know, these are all people with like, you know, legacy Grand Prix top eights and stuff. So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of good legacy names. Yeah, and and Braverman is still at it. I mean, he's he's good at magic in general, yeah, but yeah. Uh, especially legacy, like his ability. I don't know. I he was playing Death and Taxes, and I feel like every time I look over and he's playing that deck, he's just doing something completely insane to his opponent. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So he he kind of carried me and Lee for all of day one. We started uh-huh. out a little rough. We started out with a draw and then a loss, but then we we battled back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going into the last round, we are five, two, and one. And yeah. typically at team events, six, two, and one makes it. Right. Uh, unfortunately, even after getting the win, we we stuck around in the hall to wait for the announcement of who made the cut and who didn't. And it turned out that the cut was at twenty points, so six, one, and two <laughs> instead of nineteen <laughs> points, which is what we were at. That's because a bummer. Two of the yeah. teams picked up a second draw. Right. right. Um. So that was pretty brutal, and we finished in 28th place, which, honestly, like, we were pretty happy with. Like, I started out pretty rough, but Lee and Mike were sort of carrying me. Lee started losing some matches, I started winning some matches, and we, we put our stuff together okay, but we got pretty daggered by that announcement. Yeah. Um, and then I pulled off a top 16 at the Standard Classic, so... Yeah, yeah. But but lost my winning in last round to do it, sadly. Well, right. Yeah, I mean, the, those classics are pretty brutal, you know. Uh, typically, X1s often have to play in the last round I, those classics i was x1 but yeah i lost my first round so i had to play in the yeah, last yeah, round yeah 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 and just got demolished by mono red oh no yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh yeah i mean so you played you you played in you played standard through both both of the team event and the classics right yep. and i played sultai i played an identical 75 both days sultai midrange yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it was pretty much, it was just Dylan Donegan's main deck okay. that he worked on with, I think, Oliver Tomiko and Abe Corrigan. I think they all had the same list, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I changed the sideboard pretty substantially. Uh, I added Thought Erasures into the board over a Duress and a Counterspell, because mm-hmm. um, I think that card is bonkers well, and standard. People are even playing it in the main deck now of that deck. So. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. Oh yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. 
but yeah, yeah. Overall, just very happy with Sultai. Uh, I think it's it will still be a powerful deck going forward. It might not be what I would play this weekend in Dallas necessarily, but it's mm-hmm. always going to be good in this format, and it's very very adaptable. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, so played standard, lost some matches, won a reasonable number of matches. Yeah, I mean, you know, choice. top 16 in the Classic is, you know, that's a result. That's yep. a, you know, you get your deck list posted, so definitely not, <laughs> shouldn't look down on that. No, no, definitely not. I just really would like to have been playing day two with those oh, guys. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, no, for sure. And and so we are now looking into, it would be nice to make it to Cincinnati, but that that may be a plane ticket event, if anything. So yeah. we'll, we'll see if we can all make it to that. Yeah, definitely. How was your weekend? I know you played a slightly oh yeah slightly different format from me. I play. I ended up playing Legacy, mm-hmm. um, kind of a little unexpectedly. Uh, I think I like started like I realized and then started testing for Legacy on Wednesday mm-hmm. because uh, my two teammates were uh, Will Pulliam and Austin Collins, and initially our plan was for Will Pulliam to be on Legacy, um, but he. Uh, he ended up kind of realizing that the decks that he plays most of didn't feel very well positioned at the moment, so he wanted me to kind of take the reins in Legacy, and, and you know, he always had Amulet to lean back on in Modern, and he's mm-hmm. an amazing Amulet player, so yeah. I was pretty happy to make that change. Um, and so I tested some Legacy, I ended up playing uh, Bob Huang's Grixis Delver 75, um, and it was, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think Delver right now, though, is pretty solidly medium, mm-hmm. and... You don't really have the... Having the second turn one threat was really important to that deck. Yes, yes. I think that's very true. Having only Delver as, like, the thing that you can do um, is uh, not great. Mm-hmm. So it might be true that we need to, you know, explore some other avenues if Delver is going to be a deck, like, uh, potentially Terramander <laughs> is, is a real card. Um, it's a little bit of an ombo with Gurmag Angler, but I just don't see that being a huge problem. Um, because, uh, you know, if, you know, if you can't, like, make your 1-1 flyer into a 5-5 flyer, you at least have your 5-5 creature that you mm-hmm. just played, so. Um, yeah, but, you tend uh, to sort of slowly drizzle out your threats with that deck, sort of. Yes. You know, you're not yeah, trying yeah. to flood the board, necessarily. Right, right. And sometimes it happens when you flood the board and mm-hmm. run over your opponent, but, you know, not too often. Um, but yeah, it, I just think that the problem with Delver was that the format of Legacy is kind, kind of slow. Like, really slow. Mm-hmm. So it felt like a lot. all of the games that I was winning were, like, me kind of going long and using my disruptive elements and uh, eventually getting there with, like, a True Name Nemesis or, like, a Gurmak Angler or something mm-hmm. like that. So the fact that I had Delver Secrets in my deck and also Days in my deck just felt really off. If you were getting a turn um, six a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of as a result of that, I ended up switching over to Grixis Control for the uh, the Legacy Classic. Mm-hmm. Because Zan had been playing Grixis Control, said he liked it. In the Legacy Classic, I failed to win a single match. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I swiftly 0-3 dropped. <laughs> I played against Dark Depths. Delver and then post. Yeah. And that was just kind of and you know I lost against Delver but it was close and I I could have beaten the Delver opponent but he played better than I did so I failed to do so. And and post But and the other two matchups just, just felt pretty unwinnable. Pretty unwinnable. I, yeah, I was like okay playing against Dark Depths and then also playing against post this and I chose to play Grixis Control in this tournament where I know that both of these decks are like relatively popular yeah. opinions. Yeah. So I think that in terms of metagaming I 
whiffed pretty hard on the weekend. So yeah, and I'm wondering how much of that you know we've mentioned before, like last standard season, I felt like I made a mistake by playing Drakes in the standard classic due to the and it's also probably different because this is a team tournament that the open was a team tournament. Yeah. So I I felt like I'd made a mistake by playing Drakes in the standard classic because at that point it was more of a meta game deck and I had a hard time beating the like you know, the arena decks that people who weren't quite as invested in the game would show up at. Yeah, with. yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if, you know, the Legacy Classic would create, you know, creates incentive, creates slots for people to show up who are not super schooled in Brainstorm decks and are looking to pick up one of those, like, kill you with monsters kind mm-hmm. of decks or something yeah. like that. Well, it reminds me of the previous... Legacy Classic uh-huh. that I O2'd, <laughs> oh, no. where I played against Burn and then Mono Red Prison, mm-hmm. you know, and I was playing Grixis Delver in that one, and I was just like, oh, yeah, I mean, those matchups are not, not great good. for me, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, my, and my, I could tell that my prison opponent wasn't that tuned into Legacy, but the things that he was doing was just so much better than, mm-hmm. you know, what I was trying to do, so... Uh, or not better than what I was trying to do, but it but just lined up well. If you don't have the force of will, you die to the thing. Yeah, that they yeah, cast. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, and I don't know how important it is to figure out like a philosophy of SCG classics and like the types of decks that you should bring to them because the goal is to never have to play in a classic. But sure, if you're gonna like, you're not gonna day two every every open. So no. it might be good to sort of figure this out. Yeah, we'll see. Sure. Yeah. Speaking of legacy, though, we've got a sweet Keeper Mall. Yes. Well, right, and this is going to harken back to my classic match against uh, the Depths player. Mm-hmm. So this was game three. I lost game one pretty convincingly because okay. I was playing against Depths as Grixis Control. Uh, I was able to win game two, but in game two, I really got a good picture of his plan uh, because I surgical his Dark Depths in game two. That should give you a pretty um, decent picture. Yeah, yeah. And I really saw that his plan was to resolve a Dark Confidant, have the game go a little long, and then eventually grind me out with a, a you know, find a way to push through a 2020. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. But, you know, I think that I can configure a plan that beats it. Mm-hmm. And I had Blood Moons in my sideboard. And I uh, was able to win game two without using the Blood Moon. So I think that my best plan in that matchup was to resolve a Blood Moon because he didn't know about he only it. had like a couple of like I saw like maybe two assassins trophies mm-hmm. and you know if I'm like holding Force of Wills for that then I just feel like I could it's just I'm just never gonna lose right um, and he has to fetch around him too so yeah 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 for sure so going into game three I look at my opening hand and it is four lands I think it was like a C and three fetch lands. Gurmag Angler, Lightning Bolt, and Diabolic Edict. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at this hand and I was like, okay, so I can, and I'm remembering the, the, the you know, his deck that he presented and I surgical and saw last game. Uh, and I was like, okay, so I can bolt the Dark Confidant, have the Edict to, you know, buy me some time, and I have the, the Gurmag Angler as my threat. Mm-hmm. So I'm like feeling pretty good about this hand. Yeah. Even though it's, you know, four lands, three spells, and Legacy. So I decided to keep it based on the fact that I was able to sculpt like a reasonable plan with this hand, mm-hmm. but I immediately got thought seized and died. You know, <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> I mean, it's right? like a seven thought seized death. Of course, yeah, of course I did. Right. So, and it just really made me think more about the hand a little more in depth after mm-hmm. that. And I realized kind of the fundamental mistake that I made in keeping this hand was that. 
I had already gone over in my head the plan that I knew was just really, really well set up to beat his deck, which is find a Blood Moon yep. and protect it. Yep. That was a plan that was pretty easy to execute. Because if I can shut off his lands with a Blood Moon, I don't, you know, I don't care about a Dark no, Confidant or whatever. His hand is all, air, or his deck is all air other yeah. than that. Yeah. So the fact that I have Blood and Moon in my deck and also a bunch of cantrips to find said Blood Moon in my deck, keeping this like loose seven that had maybe a game plan that I was able to kind of like rationalize in the moment mm-hmm. was really bad, I think. And I got kind of trapped on my momentary rationalization of like, oh, I can make this work instead of really sticking to the the plan that I knew kind of going into the game before I looked at a seven mm-hmm. that was much, much stronger than this seven kind of offered. Right? Yeah. So my takeaway from this hand and the reason why I wanted to talk about it for Keep Em All was that if you're looking at a hand and you're like coming up with ways of rationalizing why you can keep it, but it goes against your like the fundamental plan that you want to be executing in a particular matchup, mm-hmm. you should strongly consider whether or not your rationalization of the keep mm. is actually going to be better or sh- worse than your your overall game plan that you know is going to work in the matchup. Yeah. So I think that it's probably more important to uh, stick to your kind of like preconceived plans that you've developed through testing and everything like that mm-hmm. over like, oh, you know, this this could work. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the, if you've never drafted green-red aggro in this format and you're yeah. sitting down for day two of a GP, like... Even if you see, you know, maybe don't draft it because you don't really know if it's good or how to do it. Right, you right, know? right, right. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah. And I think that those concepts are kind of, like, emphasized by the fact that my deck also had a bunch of legacy cantrips, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that just makes the deck so much better at really, really executing plans. Yeah. You can, I can find a Blood Moon pretty easily on turn yeah. three a very high percentage of the time as long Just as I'm not with this hand yeah as long as I'm a mulliganing for it and b making sure that I'm cantripping with that in mind you know that kind of philosophy isn't going to apply as much to uh you know weaker formats by any means like you know limited you just keep your hands and you see what happens right, right? but but in a format like legacy I think that uh, keeping this hand just because I was able to come up with some rationalization that wasn't even that strong because I knew that my opponent had seven discard effects in their deck. Yes. Yeah. Oh, this this edict that I have will get me there, I thought, and it, just, it was just gone immediately and I died. Yeah, and, and this is also an example of, like, being more aggressive about stuff in bad matchups. Like, sure. you, you have a plan, mm-hmm. and you know that your general plan of, like, Baleful Strixing and Coligan's commanding them is not... Yeah, relevant yeah, yeah. in this ma- I mean you know Baleful Strix chump blocks one turn or whatever but yeah. like that value plan isn't really what this matchup is about so you you need to know that your plan is going to work and it's worth mulliganing to- towards it yeah. yeah yeah that was the idea at least yep. for sure yep makes sense to me um, but yeah I thought that was like such a cool lesson that I received from that match um, so I want to share that if you're, if you're gonna owe three a tournament you might as well Oh, many lessons. And sense. honestly, shout outs to Tommy, my round two opponent. He was great. I had a lot of fun talking to him. <laughs> so if he's listening, then uh, yeah. Which deck was he on? He was on Delver. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, one thing I have noticed in general is that I, my favorite part about Legacy is that on average, my opponents are so much more willing to just have fun with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so that's yeah. always great. That's really nice. I, 
definitely had a number of opponents this weekend that I didn't really enjoy playing mm-hmm. Magic against. Yeah. Um, and that's a little unfortunate. And I'm not going to like name names or anything like that here, but... I, I I always enjoy it more when there's some interaction and, and friendliness and you know, like I ran into one of our patrons actually at this tournament, Joe Sprouse, um, who I did not even realize was a patron at first, even though he mentioned like your name and stuff. Which, <laughs> uh so I just like didn't quite process things. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was super friendly, we chatted a lot and it was you know, he was on Drake's and I was on Sultai, which is a super interesting matchup with a lot of, of play. So there was a lot of stuff to chat about, so that was really you know, it it is cool to get to hang out with your opponents at the same time as you play Magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Against them, so so uh-huh. hopefully that that happens more. But yeah, for in sure. competitive standards, sometimes it's not the friendliest <laughs> group of people. Yeah, it is interesting how there is that trend, but um, it'll happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we've, we've mentioned both formats a little bit, but today I think we're mostly going to talk about some standard cause that's still developing. Yep. We're going to talk about some legacy cause you got to play legacy and test for it. Oh yeah. Uh, and then we're going to talk about this mythic invitational that got announced right after we recorded last week. <laughs> the mythic invitational. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it should be fun. I'm, I'm excited. Cool. All right. So standard, standard's moving pretty fast. I was at the tournament. As I registered my deck and then, you know, sat down for round one, I had the feeling that, crap, I really should have registered Esper Control this weekend. Yeah, Esper Control was the hot topic moving into this weekend. Because it, it did have success um, in the previous weekend of, of Week 1 Standard. Yep. Um, but it also seemed like it was just kind of the choice that a lot of people were hyping up on social media and everything. The general consensus amongst a lot of players was that Esper was going to have a good weekend. Yep. Esper Control. Esper Control. Yeah, yeah. Um, Esper Midrange, after giving you guys maybe some, like, not super clear information on the podcast, I went home and tested it a little bit more, and it turns out that it cannot beat Sultai. Yeah. So, unless you get, like, the Thought Erasure into Thief of Sanity Draw, you just lose to Sultai. So, that deck is a non-starter for yeah. me in this format. Esper Control, however, you know, we hit... This was kind of the grindy weekend for standard of the yeah, format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were just trying to get value. So people with access to Thieves of Sanity and Teferis and stuff like that had a pretty big edge on that like grinding game going into it. I don't know. It didn't really completely play out that like Esper dominated everything this weekend. Yeah. Um it was strong in the open. We had a, uh, you know, a couple of Esper Control decks that make the top eight. In the standard classic, I think we were getting to the point where sort of the Esper game plan had been a little bit figured out, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, Abe made the top eight with Esper Control, but I saw a lot of Esper Control kind of losing early on in the tournament and might have been people adapting to it with their Sultai decks. I, my build was pretty ready for the Control decks, trying to be at least. But also, I think one of the big things this weekend, and especially on Magic Online, which developed a little more quickly, is people just started running these Spell Pierce creature decks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and those are rough for an Esper Control deck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Terramander is such a huge card. Yeah. It just... Each of these, both, both Drakes and Mono Blue kind of only had eight threats in them. And then Terramander comes along, and it gives you 50% more threats in your deck. 
Played against Drake's a lot this weekend with Sultai. I played against Mono Blue a couple of times, and it's just always really scary for the decks with like four and five mana spells in them. It it is can be really hard to capitalize, can be really hard to find spots for your big spells. As always, as in every matchup, Hydroid Crisis is just like the breaker that comes along and like changes how the game is functioning. But yeah, these these blue creature decks really like made a splash in a couple different tournaments this weekend and made their their presence known in a big way. Yeah. Um, especially the Magic Online PTQ, which I think had four Drake's decks in the top eight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Drake's. And uh and also the even the white weenie decks have, have pretty strongly all moved over to blue, it feels like. Yeah. Um, as their sideboard color. Yeah, really you really see Azorius aggro listed mm-hmm. a lot, don't you? Yeah. Um, yeah, people have kind of recognized that uh, the detention, Deputy of Detention, mm-hmm. is the real deal in that deck. It allows you to play less Conclave Tribunals. And that card in that deck feels a lot like um, Reflector Mage did, yeah. for, to a certain extent, where, uh, you know, even if they kill it or whatever, you still get that tempo play of getting their thing out of the way on the turn that you want to really alpha in or whatever. Sure. And that play pattern seems to be really strong. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think that the combination of all that happening definitely had made Esper... Esper felt pretty targeted yeah. it, to a certain extent. So, And, you know, that makes sense be- based on the expectation of Esper having a strong weekend, is that everybody who's not playing Esper but also believes that they're going to have a strong weekend, you're going to be prepared for it. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's not just those decks that can be prepared for Esper. I was never upset to get paired against Esper with with Sultai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my board plan against Esper involved bringing in 12 cards. And yeah, 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 yeah. It uh, often does with that kind of deck. So so game one is rough. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. you have hands that are like Lenoir, Elves, Wild Growth Walker, Jade Light Ranger, and you're like, well, I guess I'm putting three creatures into play and hoping they don't have a Wrath of God, which they do. Yeah. But in, in sideboarded games, you have a lot more opportunity to you know some people were going with like the thief of sanity plan which is a great combo with duresses once you hit with it esper is unlikely to be able to keep up yeah my plan was more just to grind a long game and not worry you know you you, if you get a couple explore guys you can put out a clock early and then hopefully capitalize on that by resolving a vivian reed when they uh cast their wrath but i honestly was not upset at having to grind with Esper, um, once you have your duresses in and some counter spells and uh, thought erasure, which I was very impressed with over the weekend, yeah, you can just sort of force the action. And also, Vivian just keeps up with Teferi on cards. If yeah. my opponent has a Teferi in play and I have a Vivian in play, I feel like I'm winning that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I had a bunch of games that I just played very slowly. Used Hydroid Crisis to go way up on cards and then just like slowly put Carnage Tyrants into play and force my opponents to have answers to them. Yeah. Um, just one of the reasons that I don't love these four Hydroid Crisis zero Carnage Tyrant decks, like the, the, the deck that happened to win the classic. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really important to draw into stuff with your Hydroid Crisis in those control matchups and, Hydro and Carnage Tyrant is a really live version of stuff to draw into. That makes sense. Otherwise, you're drawing a lot of cards, and it's just a lot of air that gets wrathed or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like with Carnage Tyrant gets wrathed, but that's literally the only answer to it. Right, 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 right. Um, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I see what you're saying for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that. And it's also worth noting that uh, I think that a lot of these uh, Sultai midrange decks are switching over to Thought Erasure in the main deck. Yeah. That's kind of the new tech that I've heard about for these decks, is that Thought Erasure in the main. Um, also, uh, I know that Zan's been trying out some Thief of Sanities in the main deck mm-hmm. as well. And I, you know, he's been jamming a lot of Arena here at our apartment, and I was just watching him play a game one against... Esper Control, and yep. he just went Thought Erasure into uh, uh, Thief of Sanity, game one, and they just conceded. Yeah. And, and their hand was, like, fine, but they, they just It doesn't matter. Yeah, it just, they didn't have any more removal spells, so yeah. it's just over. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah. Wild Growth Walker is so bad. Yeah, right, right, right. In every matchup that's not mono-red or mono-white. I believe it. Um, I, I do want to say that my sideboarding philosophy against the blue decks from Sultai, and I, I switched stuff around, and I looked at different people's sideboarding guides and stuff. A lot of people were, were taking out the Wild Growth Walkers and matchups like that, but I felt that it was important to be able to use them to apply that early pressure and get you just enough life to yeah. not die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the only cards that I brought in would be, like, one removal spell and then all of my duress effects, so three duresses and two thought erasures. Yeah. Um, and that seemed to me to be the the plan that is most effective against them. You want the most cheap spells you possibly can have. Yeah. Yeah, if you didn't know, Duress is amazing against Mono Red. Yeah. Yeah. Their deck is a, a majority of their deck is spells, and some of those spells either deal damage that you don't want to take or are, you know, experimental frenzy or something crazy. So uh, I've been really impressed with Duress. And just like the fact that you can trade you're, the way that you win in a matchup of mid-range versus aggro is mm-hmm. that you just make sure that you're actively trading all of your resources for their cards that isn't your life total. Yep. Right? And Dress is just a perfect example of that happening. You just trade a resource for a card that isn't your life total, and you can move on. Yeah. Especially when you get to trade for light up the stage one for one. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that it's even an oh, man thing. You're just, like, very relieved that they didn't get to cast it Oh, I think it's an oh, man thing, for sure. Yeah. I, you don't feel like you did it. You just yeah. feel like, oh, I stopped them from doing it. Yeah. I don't I, know. It reminds me of the match that I played against the um, the black-red burn guy, whose deck was literally all three damage burn spells, plus four light of the stage, four risk factor, four... What's the black... One that draws three, or you can pay. Oh, uh, sword point diplomacy. Yeah, sword point diplomacy. Yeah. yeah, I was just like slamming duresses and negates on all of those yeah. cards specifically because they're all the two for ones. Yep. Um, and that was back when I I didn't have any creatures really in that deck, so I was just <laughs> like really crossing my fingers. So, um, yeah, but funny. Yeah, yeah. So, and and, and yeah, like against the blue decks too. Like you have that same kind of strategy. You want to. Trade one mana for their dive down instead of four mana for their one mana and their dive down. Mm -hmm. So, like, those taking cards out of their hands is really good. And Thought Erasure taking Crackling Drake is is nice. Yeah. Um, Because every time they cast Crackling Drake, you feel behind. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, Thought Erasure one-for-ones against cards that no other card can one-for-one against. Yeah, including Hydroid Crazes. Um, yeah, Hydrocrisis is the big one. You one for one against Hydrocrisis and in like in the mirror scenario and you're just feel on top of the world. Yeah, definitely. Um oh one of the other things that is good against Hydrocrisis, which I think is one of the things that is putting Drake's and to a lesser extent mono blue, I'm much more of a Drake's fan, but uh that's putting them over the top and giving them a lot of play is the tempo that you buy with entrancing melody against every deck that's not Esper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Entrancing Melody I've been pretty impressed with lately. Yeah. 
Um, stealing explore guys sometimes is good enough to keep you from dying as your flyers kill them. Stealing a Krasis that they've stabilized with is insane. And then, of course, it's just good against the aggressive decks because you need a tool like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think next weekend, though, I, I think right now, at this exact moment, it's great to be putting Thought Erasure into your Sultai deck over your Murfolk over your Wadgrowth Walkers. Yeah. I think that's awesome because it's so much more live against Esper. It's so much more live in the mirror, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, I think next weekend, everybody who's doing that is going to get eaten alive. Uh, By Mono Red and White Weenie? Mono Red and White Weenie. I, yeah. Like, I would, pr- I would put money on three plus aggro decks in the top eight and, mm-hmm. and like, it will win the tournament, I think. Well, not only is... The factor I'm assuming you're talking about, which is that those decks are going to be well-positioned because people are kind of going a little too mid-rangey. Mm-hmm. But also, I don't know if you know this about Texas, but Texas loves their aggro I've decks. I've heard this. It's, I, I, <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing. Yeah, Texas, love their, Texas loves their aggro decks. Okay. So if, the Dallas Opens are always littered with a bunch of Monored, a bunch of, you know, that style of strategy. Yeah. So... I, w- I wouldn't be surprised at all to have those archetypes really yeah. shine in, in that, specifically because of it's in, it's in Dallas. I don't think you can take main deck Thought Erasure over main deck Wildgrowth Walker mm-hmm. to Dallas. That seems like a bad idea to me. It'll be an interesting choice because I think that a lot of people are going to be doing their testing online. Mm-hmm. I think that it is good online to do the thought erasure thing. I think it is too. But if everybody's like, oh, I see that everybody online is doing thought erasures and they really go hard on aggro, yeah, that could yeah. be that could be troublesome. Online meta also moves very quickly. Yeah. And I'll bet you in, within the next couple of days, uh, people are going to realize it. People are going to switch to aggro decks and they're going to... if. After I get main deck thought erasure a couple of times, I'm just going to switch over to a deck that doesn't care about main deck thought erasure. And it's fair. So, um, so yeah, I would I would strongly suggest playing an aggro deck that is strong against other aggressive decks, which is basically mono red with goblin chain whirlers. I think. Yeah. Um, and you also get the added advantage of being very strong against mono blue. Although I do think that mono red is a little behind against drakes. So. That's yeah, but but that's a little coin flippy. Yeah, I don't know. Like Terramander being vulnerable to chain. Oil. I haven't played this matchup with the. I, I played it plenty last season. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Red is transformed with the presence of Light up the stage, and, right? And Drake's is transformed with the presence of Terramander. So I, I need to try that matchup a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that and uh, I'm just not sold on who's favored in the White Weenie versus Mono Red matchup. Yeah. Um, okay. My, I don't, I don't know if I've ever lost that matchup from the White Weenie side. Really? Okay. Um, and it's always felt just like really fine. Uh, cause sometimes you go just way bigger than they can keep up with sure. and you run them over not close. It feels like the only games that you lose are the ones where you just get really blown out by a chain world. By a chain world. But, but no other way is yeah. how you lose. Uh, they're, they're not faster than you in any context and their cards aren't really that you know, I guess now they have the inherent value of light up the stage, mm-hmm. which is which is something that they need in that matchup because you've got things like history of Benalia. You know, if you ever flip a Legion's Landing, it can be good late game. Yeah, um, just making your guys bigger with Loxodons really strong. Mm-hmm. I I've never really struggled with that matchup, but I probably would just like need to sit down and 
like with one of my teammates and just like really jam that matchup for a while. Yeah. Um, to you know, they got so exactly. they can they can beat up on me enough where I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, uh, I'm I'm not sold on that matchup personally. I, I everybody has told me that Monterey is favored, mm-hmm. so I. You know, I want to believe that, but it, it yeah. doesn't feel that way to me. I mean, I'm you got to trust yourself, but you sure. also have to sit down with somebody competent on the other yeah. side of the table and figure right. out exactly. It's how just not matches. a specific matchup that I've sat down and jammed a lot with, yeah. like a teammate who yep. I know is going to play very well. Right? Definitely. I think that yeah, I I I heard a lot about Esper control going into this weekend. And so at first felt bad about my deck choice of Sultai because even though I had a plan against Esper, I was worried that maybe this matchup is just as bad as everybody thinks it is. Like people are bringing Esper to beat up on Sultai. Sultai just did fine in every single tournament. This yeah, weekend. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and honestly, Sultai seems like one of those decks that's going to be so hard to hate out. Yeah, it's it's really strong. It has plans in every matchup that exists. Yeah, explore cards are broken. Yeah, the explore creatures Very powerful. They, you don't understand that sometimes the, your Jade Light Ranger draws you two cards, <laughs> and it's like two real cards because that deck wants to make as many land drops as it can. Yeah, they they could not have printed a more perfect card for the deck than Hydra Crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An yeah. X creature that draws spells and you can get back with fine finality Whoa. and can't be countered. Right, like, right, right. Um, it, yeah, crazy. It's 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 nutty, and the the fact that right, it just works so well with those guys that draw cards and then fuel it. It's so yeah. good. Yeah, you're yeah. People have kind of forgotten this piece, I think, or maybe it's that people are just now realizing this part. Mm-hmm. Um, is that yeah, all the explore creatures it really it does feel like they draw cards because yeah. you're drawing your lands, which you need to hit, mm-hmm. um, and then also your deck is full of a bunch of like you know kind of air like bad stuff like low to the ground explore stuff and then super heavy hitters and find finality and hydro crisis yep so you can just like you know digging towards one of those by like milling a lanowar elf or you know whatever yeah random card just lets you skip a turn get a turn closer towards doing your big thing it feels like they're drawing cards very frequently so yeah that's that's pretty crazy to have on just like early bodies you know what i mean definitely um and and that the fact that Hydrocrisis also adds that big flying body to the deck. It means you're you you have a very real plan against these decks that are putting flying threats yeah. into play. Yeah, a lot yeah. of times, as long as you get to the point in the game where you're making that five five Hydrocrisis that can't get lava coiled and fights all of their stuff, then you're putting yourself in a really good spot to make that work. Yeah. If you just wanted to build S- or to build Sultai. And then just adapt it towards whatever metagame you're expecting on any given weekend. You're you're probably gonna have a good time. Yeah, like you'll just you can yeah. do that for the whole standard yeah. format. If you practice with your matchups and you have a good tuned list, mm-hmm. it's gonna be really hard to go wrong with Sultai. Yep. And one big problem with that, as far as like metagame diversity goes, is it really pushes out all the other green decks in the format. Mm-hmm. Um, I played against Gruel and I played against a Bant deck. And I just was looking at opening hands. I was looking at board positions on turn four. And I was just <laughs> trying to think of ways I could ever lose these matchups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the card find finality. If, yeah. I, if I ever draw one, I could cast it with modes and targets at random. And I will probably win that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like sweeping the board of all of their gruel spell breakers and stuff while grading you with two threats great yeah, yeah. getting back a hydro crisis that like almost beat them the first time around <laughs> great 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, these other green decks just are going to need to be doing something really, really different from this grindy game in yeah. order to, to have a place, and they're not really right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. It's just so hard to aggro out a deck that has a main deck sweeper. Yeah. Like three main deck fine finalities. Right. You're just like, you know, if you're playing an aggro deck, your creatures are going to die to the finality side and it's standard. So you're not, you're not generally racing those too well unless you're on like a super dedicated, right? Like a mono white deck is yep. like the only thing that I can think of that'll race a finality. But, um, well, mono red, I think is actually a bad matchup for the deck. Sure. Um, even with wild growth walkers, they have so many ways of killing the Wild Growth Walkers, and you don't always draw them. Yeah. In the games where you don't draw a Wild Growth Walker, I don't think you can win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, mostly I was talking about other, like, green aggressive yeah, decks. Yeah, 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 for sure. Decks that rely on creatures mm-hmm. are pretty dead in the water against this deck, unless they are specifically those dive-down blue creature decks. Sure, right, right, right. Um, but, yeah, you can't out-muscle this deck. There's, there's no way. Crazy. Yep. Uh, you can ignore creatures, in the, as in the case of the Nexus decks. Sure. That works very well, especially game one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We keep seeing these decks pop up. Uh, I know we even saw like a Nexus of Gates deck in in the top eight of the Classic, I believe. I think Drake Sasser top eight of the Classic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Gates is around. Um, Gates, is, Gates is pretty strong, even, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the best Gates deck are actually just not nexus fate deck just the the gatebreaker ram yeah just stuff gatebreaker rams uh the the gate sphinxes rev tireless tracker combo card (laughs) um yeah that card is broken it is i mean the gates deck is basically like sultai can't beat it you can't outgrind the deck yeah um and that's its place in the meta is preying on the mid-range yeah decks i i know people have said that they figured out like the esper matchup but i'll believe it when i see it i yeah. think it, it's it's hard to beat just the absorbs game one and it's really hard to beat and it's, you know the esper decks are running main deck thought erasure too so, so in, in place of yep. most of their two mana counter spells right uh, it's really hard for a gates deck to beat that and then post board when there's negates and duresses coming into the esper decks it's... yeah yeah for sure the um the big plan that I think people were talking about for the gate stack against Esper was that they noticed that all of the Esper sideboard guides boarded out all of the uh, Wraths mm-hmm. post board against um, Gates. Yeah. So uh, Austin Collins on my team actually played Gates this weekend, and the plan was to bring in Carnage Tyrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they're bringing out all the Wraths, then we would bring in Carnage Tyrant, and that just beats it. So uh, that was our plan. Yep. I think that. I'm, I was so far removed from standard, I just like don't even right. know. You're on the other side. I of had the table. no idea what happened in our standard matches. Um, but uh, Austin yeah. said that he liked the deck after the weekend, so mm-hmm. that's, that's that's good for sure. That also just means if you're Esper, keep two Wraths in your deck yeah. against Gates. Right. Problem um, solved. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, one thing to be careful of with Esper against the Nexus decks, and I think this is the main reason. I, I don't think Chromium is a good card. Okay. And I don't think it's good in the main deck of these Esper decks. Yeah. Uh, I think it's only in there because you literally can't beat the Nexus decks with Teferi. Oh, yeah. You can't deck them if they have Nexus of Fates in their deck. Oh, that's hilarious. Because they can just keep discarding them. Right, right, So right. you need a win condition. I kind of prefer the lists with Karn, 
Karn isn't great in the Esper decks, but it's it's okay. And, uh, but yeah, you need a win condition against these decks, uh, or else... Uh, even if it's just in the sideboard, you're guaranteeing you lose game one against somebody who's willing to call you on the no-win condition thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's why Chromium has been showing up. Yeah. I don't know. I like Karn much better in that I slot. I think so, too. Yeah, just make some Constructs. That'll kill him. Yeah. Plus, Karn is just... he. Uh, what did Zan call Karn recently that I really liked? Oh, he said that Karn is the, the god of lands. <laughs> where Karn uptick <laughs> is just always a land. But guess what? We love lands. We love lands. Wow, give me all these lands. I'm oh my god. Chemister's insane. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, if we can't play explore, these broken explorer creatures, we'll just play Karn. Karn yeah. will get us all our lands. Yeah, seems fine. Yeah. Yeah, one of the most underrated plays that I've seen is that, like, really kind of getting the read on somebody not having all their land drops and just never giving them the land with their Karn upticks and just watching them really struggle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Definitely don't default to giving the land. Like, pay yeah. attention to your opponents. Just like, man, like, and this is also why I never play, a, why you should never play a land first before you uptick Karn is you want to mm-hmm. give your opponent no information whatsoever. Yeah. You want them to just be completely in the dark about what your hand needs and then maybe they if they ever choose wrong on karn you're so far ahead yeah 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 it does feel really good for sure but yeah so that's standard i would very likely choose you know we're a couple of days out if i were going to dallas my gut instinct is to play a very aggressive deck that has tools in the aggressive mirrors so i feel comfortable if my opponent starts on mountain or plains sure um, that's where I want to be. Yeah. And I wish I had a definitive answer on what that was. Uh, I think that the popular answer is going to be mono red. Mm-hmm. Um, my current answer is white weenie. Yeah. Um, but I definitely have to do some testing on that. To yeah. Be sure. Yeah. My experience playing against mono red has just been that it's so scary that I kind of want to be on the so scary deck. Oh, yeah. That, but, makes, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I, I have plenty of respect for I'm always down ones. to spook them. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and and I had cut the chain whirlers from the list that I was playing. Yeah. I'd just put them in the sideboard. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't do that this weekend. No, no, no. I think it's too important. For sure. So, yeah. Um, you want to take us away on Legacy a little bit? Legacy... Um, oh man, yeah. So I played Legacy. Uh, I actually did like pretty well on my individual record for the for day one, uh, despite not winning any matches on, in the classic. <laughs> um, but Legacy's great, and I had a lot of fun. the The one deck there are two decks that I want to talk about that I didn't play. Okay. Um, and one of them was um, yeah. So one of the big decks that was a kind of a the talk of the town was Tommy Ashton's Grixis Phoenix deck yeah. in Legacy. Um, so for those uh, unaware, this deck is the Dark Ritual into Buried Alive, get three Arclight Phoenixes deck. You you know I tweeted this. Yeah, yeah, when, yeah. When Arclight Phoenix was like starting to be a thing in modern, I I tweeted, can we please have Buried Alive in modern? Because all I want to do is. Pyretic Ritual, Metamorphose, Buried Alive. <laughs> well, it turns out all you need to do is Dark Ritual buried alive yeah. and that's the combo so this deck is four arc light phoenix two Tombstalker, and i'm going to talk about these Tombstalkers. right in a, in right Tombstalker, Tombstalker population dropped to zero once Gurmag angler started yeah. seeing play. yeah so yeah this is exciting to this me. is exciting but terrible don't <laughs> please dear god do not play Tombstalker in legacy there's just a one mana cheaper version of this card oh. it is called Gurmag angler and it's just way better I'm sorry. I'm sorry to rain on the parade. I don't here know if you can bit. see the frown on him. <laughs> Tombstalker 
is one of my favorite cards in Magic. Oh, like I played this it? card in Standard. Yeah. So yeah. you know, it has well, a Chris, really special I, place. I really regret to inform you that the glory days of Tomb Soccer are over. I am bummed <laughs> and unsurprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've been so I've been playing Tommy Ashton's Exact seventy five on um, Magic Online for the past day or two, mm-hmm. and I have never resolved a Tomb Soccer. <laughs> Have you just always wished that it was good? I've always English? just brainstormed it away. Oh, or God. Uh, or whatever. It's just like, you know, uh, I've just never I've just never cast it. Yeah. Um, the difference between one and two mana is enormous. It's, it's so legacy. Big. Yeah, and also I want to use that other mana to cast my cantrip, you know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> um so yeah, the number of times I've just like haven't had two black sources or <laughs> Just, like, only had one extra mana, but, like, infinity cards in my graveyard. It was just all very sad. Um, But, you know, I don't want that to take away from the fact that I think this deck, this archetype, is great. Yep. I like to think of it more as a combo deck Mm -hmm. than anything else. It's kind of similar to playing Sneak and Show, but instead of having to resolve your three mana spell and then have a... 11 mana or sorry an 8 mana creature in your hand yeah you instead get to the point where you need to resolve a 1 mana spell and have a 3 mana spell in your hand mm-hmm. that's how it feels like most of the time gotcha where you're using all of your cantrips to get to the point where you can go cantrip dark writ buried alive 9 you yeah and that happens very frequently on turn 2 sometimes even on turn 1 with lotus petals wow I've had several turn uh, 1 turn 1 you. Turn one, I'll just like you know be like, okay, I've got the I've got the dark ritual and the buried alive already in my hand, mm-hmm. and then I like just like cast my ponder, find a lotus petal, <laughs> just do it on turn one, and they're they're just dead. Yeah, and if what you were saying about legacy feeling like a slower kind of grindier this format, this is the fast deck. It yeah. feels like um, this deck was doing everything that I wanted Delver to be able to do. Yeah, um, Delver was just a, an extraordinarily slow, like medium minus mid range deck. It felt like, but mm-hmm. this deck has the c- capability to um, interact a lot. It's playing four Thoughtseize and four Cabal Therapy. Um, Cabal Therapy, by the way, great with Arclight Phoenix. <laughs> um, it is a little uh, wild to me that this deck has no way of discarding an Arclight Phoenix that it draws. No, just... it's just a combo deck. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just Dark Ritual Buried Alive. But yeah. the deck is all cantrips, and it's legacy, so yeah. you'll, it's, you'll get there. Um, oh, totally, totally. Yeah, and sometimes you just go like, all right, turn three, Buried Alive, and then you just like have a Thought Season, a cantrip, and, and your hand, and you're like, yeah, these are coming back next turn. Don't sure. worry about it. Sure. Um, I just, you know, there's, there's a big part of me that just desperately wants to fit a couple of Faithless Looting into the deck. It's honestly, if it's, it's really probably just... it's probably correct to do so. Interesting. Um, yeah, uh, I this list is in it's my brand mind new. not very clean. Right. Tomb Stalker, I think, is unplayable. I think that these could easily be Gurmag Anglers, mm-hmm. and you're already increasing your win percentage a lot. I think that four Arc Light Phoenix might be too many. Just play three. Hmm. Um, if you draw one, you can you can typically you know brainstorm it away or whatever. Sure. Uh, and it's been very infrequent that I've just, like, had too many of those rotting in my hand. Mm-hmm. Or too many of those to the point where I just, like, wouldn't have the extra one in my deck to... Yeah. Um, it, the, and the fourth feels unnecessary. The combo of getting two Arclight Phoenixes into play with your Buried Alive is, like, still pretty likely to kill your opponent a lot of the time, so... Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, yeah, Fair Decks just concede if you resolve a Buried Alive. Sure. 
like Grixis control, like what what are they gonna do? Just beat your phoenixes forever and ever and ever? Yeah, your deck is like, like your deck is all cantrips. Yeah, yeah. You're not gonna brick on cantrips. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Right, and this is even more so than the modern deck because you get to run like six this is legacy, so you get to run sixteen lands because your cantrips are brainstorm and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So For sure. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this deck has felt very powerful. I think it has a lot of legs. I think it has a lot of room to improve. Yeah. Um, but if it's if it's be- killing people in this iteration, then it's it's really going to be yeah, doing yeah. something when it's tuned. Right. I've been having a lot of fun with it. Uh, not only is it not tuned yet, but mm-hmm. also I think it has the KCI feel of people just haven't really figured out the most optimal ways of playing it quite yet. Sure. I mean, for the most part, people get it. They're like, "Oh yeah, rich, you know, cantrip into ritual into buried alive," and yeah. that's that's it. And that I think that has been the most successful plan for me. But there are a lot of plans that involve like young pyromancer or whatever that, f- or you know, be figuring out how to utilize your phoenixes and your buried alive when you don't have exactly the combo. It's like, okay, am I really going to use these cantrips to dig for my dark ritual this turn, or do I just like suck it up and? go for casting the buried alive and turning doing things next turn mm-hmm. there's a lot of like weird unique sequencing decisions cool that um i've noticed that i have been pretty lost on in my initial <laughs> testing of so uh yeah i'm i honestly this deck makes me super excited for for all of those reasons i'm um, i'm totally down to play a phoenix deck in basically any phoenix, <laughs> yeah so. i know you like phoenix for sure um so yeah uh you know and also just like i it feels like three arc light phoenixes um, is like, a better number. Interesting. Uh, unless you're playing Faithless Living. If you if you switch over to playing Faithless Living, then mm-hmm. I can see four. Because then that just like gives you a whole additional avenue. Um, the problem with Faithless Living is that if you're ever really trying to, you know, hard mode out some Arc Light Phoenixes, mm-hmm. you have to... It, it feels like you have to have additional free spells on turn two. Um, right, right. The, so the Metamorphos would have to be based... an additional addition maybe yeah I, I think that that is right the faithless looting based arclight phoenix decks and modern desperately want metamorphose gut shot maybe surgical extraction right 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 like yeah yeah thank god neither of these formats has getaxian probe oh man yeah they definitely had to ban that before printing or even considering printing a card like arlay phoenix yeah so definitely yeah uh just my free cantrip don't worry about <sighs> it and making <laughs> sure that nothing is in my oh way. yeah, Good. Come not on. to mention the actual broken part of Gataxian Probe, which is like, let me see. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. I, I, we, I, we said this like when I first started playing Legacy at all. Like the first thing that I said when I came on this show after like playing a couple of Legacy leagues was, I just hate playing against Gataxian Probe yeah, yeah, so much. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I feel like I've said on the podcast, Gataxian Probe just reads, uh, pay two life. Draw a card, gain a significant advantage in the game that you're playing. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, if you're using the spell part to do something bonkers, like help bring oh, back a phoenix, yes. too. Then. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, no, it's not legal. We don't really need to think about it. Just, yeah. thank goodness. So what was the um, other deck? That you the other deck that I want to talk about is um, what I believe to be the best deck in Legacy right now, which is uh, Storm. Okay. Uh, I think that... Uh, Ad Nauseam Tendrils is uh, just really, really well set up against pretty much all of the major decks in Legacy right now. Mm-hmm. You have a good matchup against uh, the blue decks, which is really crazy, because the the Storm lists have turned into 
having a, a significant number, they're playing like seven discard spells in the main now, mm-hmm. right? So the plan, you know, you're not really trying to blitz people out as much as you are trying to, you know, just like allow the game to go a little long, sculpt your hand, and then go double discard in to kill you yep. after stripping away your, you know, counter spell or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, like... You know, because we've lost Gitaxian Probe, that's kind of like forced them into um, doing something like this. And I just think that it works out. Like, I think that Storm is pretty heavily favored against the current iterations of Delver. Okay. Which is a huge statement. Yeah, because that's the whole um, point of Delver is to beat decks like Yeah, decks. Delver wants to be able to beat up on um, combo decks. Yeah. But right now, it just they just don't. Interesting. Um, because the games go long, because Delver is not a, very fast right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you you know, you're going to be getting Thoughtseized or Duressed throughout the games, and they're going to be able to take away your, you know, your force of will and easily play through your your soft permission, because they, remember, the games are going long, yeah. so the soft permission gets much worse. It just dies at some um, point. So, uh, so I really, I really like... Uh, ad nauseum tendrils right now, and I think that it's well positioned. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen it do some dirty things. It can win off of just like so few resources. Yeah, and think about the other decks that people are playing right now. Um, Depths, Loam, Lands, Eldrazi. You know, I'm just like reading off a bunch of the lists from the top eight of uh, the the team open. Um, you know, Lands, uh, Elves is close, but you know, post miracles like all of the all of the like fair blue decks right now mm-hmm. i feel like you're actually like pretty well set up to that's deal a with. good spot to be in yeah 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 so uh oh that's kind of wild that none of the uh top 25 teams i didn't realize this but nobody is on death and taxes yeah death taxes seems to have gone down in popularity yeah um Probably just because the only person that, who can win with it right now is Michael Bergman. Is Michael Bergman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, like, you know, blue-based, you know, Brainstorm decks, uh, I think is, was pretty much all of the top eight of the Legacy Classic was some sort of uh, Brainstorm deck. We've got uh, Blue-White Delver, uh, Death Shadow, um, Blue Black Delver, that was kind of a spicy one. Grish's yeah, let's, show. let's click on that list because that that one is a spicy one with four Stitcher Supplier. Oh yeah. Um, and also Eureka the Tiger Shadow. So this is the deck that Braverman lost to in the top eight of that classic. Actually, really. Whatever. Oh yeah, I remember people talking about how. Uh, yeah, Eureka was printed recently in one of the commander sets, and um, sometimes those, or not commander sets, was it a commander set? Yes, yes, because okay. she, she has commander ninjutsu. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, it's regular ninjutsu, but she, she ninjutsu's out for blue and a black, so whenever you have an un, uh, unblocked attacking creature, um, you can pay two mana to put her into play, and then she has whenever a ninja you control deals combat damage to a player... You basically reverse Bob. You get the top card of your library, and then your opponent loses life equal to its converted mana cost. I think so. This plays kind of like the like the Ninja of the Deep Hours Delver deck in mm-hmm. Popper a little bit. Yes, yeah. is, is kind of the idea behind this thing. And Stitcher Supplier gives you another one drop for your Ninja, and also fuels you big know germs. Ger- big germs. Uh, kind of a little bit surprising that there's no like Cabal therapies for that thing to to fuel but who knows but so this was a kind of sweet deck i don't think that it quite hits 
I, I don't know how like lasting this is going to be. Your eco costing two mana and you need to do it in combat with a creature is like not... That's hard to pull off in Legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not sold on this deck. It might be it might be just, like, good enough, right? Mm-hmm. But I suspect what likely happened here is that Lyle Rolfs was very experienced with this deck and was able to really lean on the inexperience that his opponents had in terms of not really expecting um, the Eureka and um, some of the kind of techie spells that he's got, like... Uh, consign to oblivion and uh, unmask in the main. So that's those are all pretty fun. But, uh, but yeah, I mean the deck looks sweet for sure. It definitely looks sweet. So you know you can try it for sure. Yeah, maybe worth a shot. Any other thoughts about legacy in general? I think I I kind of covered the. I mean, legacy's so vast. Yeah. Know, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. We're not going to be able to do a, a summary of legacy like we did with standard. And but. you can still show up to a legacy tournament with your mono red prison or with the yeah, yeah, reanimator yeah. or whatever you want to play. And as long as you know your matchups, yeah. you know. Yeah, generally right now, I think that the best archetypes are... Well, so I think the storm kind of beats up on everything right now mm-hmm. in my mind. But um, aside from that, the, like, the loam decks seem really well positioned. Depths seems pretty well positioned. Mm-hmm. The blue brain storm decks are pretty hard to go wrong with, but they they seem kind of medium unless you're doing something a little extra special. And they are significantly more skill like like skill capped than the the a lot of the other decks in the format. Like brainstorming correctly is harder than a lot of the other decks that you could yes. play. You get. Yeah. You get big percentages off of being able to do it, but you know there's a cost of practicing and and, and correct play that that needs to be paid in order to capitalize on those lists. Yeah, makes sense for sure. But yeah, I think I think that's legacy for me. Um, yeah. So should we talk we about can, the, we can transition over to talking about the mythic invitational the mythic announcement? Invitation. All right. So you all know what this is, but in case you haven't been paying attention, Wizards announced the first sort of thing in their the first tournament that we're seeing in their big like esports push yeah so this is called the mythic invitational this is a million dollar tournament with 64 players yeah um the players that are invited to this tournament are the 32 players in the magic pro league um they sort of hand-picked 24 magic players of note so some you know just well-known magic players like lsv a bunch of streamers like gabby sparts and kenji uh and uh some of the like newer streamers some of the people that have kind of transitioned from hearthstone and stuff um so it's it's a pretty wide and diverse group of people that they've picked and then the eight players who at the end of this like february season are ranked in the top eight of mythic or you know of the constructed ladder on arena um and so those 64 players are going to be playing in this invitational tournament top prize is uh $250,000 uh even last place gets $7,500 and the format is a little weird it's best of three but you bring two decks and you don't get to sideboard for your first game, you each play a deck that's picked at random. And then for your second game, you each play the other deck. And then for your third game, you get to pick one of your decks to play. So I know that's a lot to take in. Yeah. And there have been a lot of thoughts about this. Yeah. 
the before we apply our own thoughts, I think we could probably talk about the general because it's been a you know yeah. it's been like over a week now since mm-hmm. um, the announcement initially, and it it it's, it was received pretty poorly, pretty poorly on social media, especially at first. Yeah, the initial reactions to this were uh, everything is on fire. Yeah, what have you done? Um, and you know, I understand that because there were a lot of very r- real and reasonable um, uh, things wrong with this announcement. You know what I mean? Uh, or not with the announcement, but just like, you know, people were so confused about some of the structure and some mm-hmm. of the stuff didn't make any sense. And, you know, people were concerned about how having to grind to the top eight of uh, Mythic might be way too hard and, like, psychologically damaging, people were saying. (laughs) They were like, yeah, I mean, if you, like, wanted to grind the season, you just have to be playing Mythic constantly for the next month. Especially Um, the last, like, week of it, I think. Yeah, right. That is true. And, And then the other thing that people had a problem with on that was that even in the announcement, Wizards was like, Make sure that you never trust what Magic Arena tells you your rank is. We're going to end up emailing everybody after the deadline with their official final ranking. Yeah, that's not an ideal. And that's, it it was just all like, what? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so people were, you know, saying a lot of things. Also, you know, there were no, a lot of notable names mm-hmm. not included in the hand-picked well, process. Well, so let's talk about this, the invitations part of it, because I think that's what people were really loud about. Mm-hmm. And I think, I I mean, I understand why, and my initial, like, gut reaction to the concept of this, I, we've, we've talked about before, like, how I don't love invitational tournaments in general. Yeah. Especially the very high value ones. Yeah. Like this is this is actually like the biggest magic tournament in history. Yeah. And it's a very I think that my main problem with it is that this is the biggest mag- magic tournament in history, prize wise, and it is available only to a very exclusive club of people, including twenty-four people picked by Watsi based on not number one not super clear criteria and number two like not criteria that we knew we mm. maybe should have been aiming at at yeah. some point and this is only right. a one-time thing this yeah. doesn't qualify for future tournaments or anything and even if i knew this was going to happen i wouldn't have a year ago said all right i'm going to start streaming full time so that i can be in the mythic invitation <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's not like this is not the fairest criticism mm-hmm. but to me it felt very weird that out of nowhere Wizard says, all right, we are going to award this specific group of people with just a very large amount of equity that has been denied to all of the high-level pro players who didn't make the top 32. Sure. And that is a little frustrating to hear, but on the other hand, that is just absolutely Watsi's prerogative. They want to create an event that gets viewers and gets people excited about magic. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, maybe this tournament isn't really targeted towards our demographic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things I want to say about all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, go. I, I talked. Um, now you, yeah. The, I think that there was a pretty clear criteria for mm-hmm. who Wizards picked, and it was just who Wizards wanted to pick. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, there was no, there. you know, there wasn't a whole lot of, 
like consistency in who was chosen. Mm-hmm. They just wizards selected the players who they wanted to select for their invitational tournament. Yep. And I think that's fine. Yep. Um, it's their you know money and it's their product that they're creating. Right. At the end of the day. And the thing that they care about most is that there will be these people who they have selected representing their initial esports push. Mm -hmm. So if they believe that those are the best people for that first huge tournament, go for it. Go for it. You know, pick those players who you think are going to be the best fit for your criteria, whatever it may be. We don't really have to know about it mm-hmm. for for that extent you know what i mean um and if it felt to me like uh, so much of the backlash against the people that uh were selected for this was kind of purely because out of envy for a lot of uh you know i saw so much negativity on twitter immediately after mm-hmm. this it was like oh why didn't this person get in why did they, oh this is all trash uh, you know blah 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 <laughs> And it was just it's such a huge amount of negativity that I saw um, that just kind of like really illustrated to me the general reaction that I've seen so often out of our community on social media against these kinds of these kinds of announcements. And, and let's not mince words here. Like, I think a big part of the reaction was absolutely because a number of the people picked for those 24 spots were women, were female streamers. And I think that within a certain section of the community, that creates a reaction that we shouldn't be proud of. Yeah, no, absolutely. A lot of people were upset because they believed that some of the people selected were only selected because they were women. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Even if they were, like... Sure, that's that's they, totally Wizards' prerogative. Yes. They, Wizards wanted, you know, there, there aren't any women in the top 32 uh, of the MPL, right? right. So, you know, if they want this invitational tournament to be, you know, as representative as possible of all of the demographics that, uh, that Wizards that wants to play, target. And not even just that Wizards want to, wants to target, but also that do play magic. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it seems totally reasonable to invite a bunch of women to this tournament. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, and I think that definitely went along with a lot of this backlash was that um, people decided because they realized that it became cool on social media to hate on this tournament Mm -hmm. for the reasons of, you know, oh, this person deserves it over this person, right? That was kind of like the general argument of like, oh, well, you know, you know, let's talk about who deserves it more. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of line of arguing and that angle of approach on like justifying things that you kind of really have no business justifying. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think a lot of people have kind of viewed this Mythic Invitational as like a pro tour-esque tournament where it's like, you know, you really got to earn it if you're getting here. Yeah. But this tournament, this, this Mythic Invitational isn't about that at all. It's about really promoting the game um, in other ways, right? And I think um, that's where a little bit of my initial... I, I, I'm a little more adjusted to the idea of it now than I was at first. And that was, that was a little bit of my problem with it for pretty much the entire history of Magic and the entire history of, like, highly uh, prized tournaments that have competitive play the concept behind it is very maybe not even quite meritocratic but you're supposed to 
earn your way there yeah. by playing competitive magic and certainly getting lucky and spiking tournaments and that sure. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to see this huge tournament that includes a big portion that uh, that doesn't come from, I think maybe part of it is just that like I'm uncomfortable with that sort of change so quickly. No, and I'm so happy that you brought that up because this is something that I do want to really voice uh, on the podcast, which mm-hmm. is the definition of a professional magic player mm-hmm. has changed drastically yeah. over the past year, yep. even. Because um, everybody who's been grinding magic for the past, for like 15 years plus, mm-hmm. has this really fundamental idea of what it means to be a professional magic player. Yep. And their idea is that you have to be really, really good at the game. Yep. Um, that's not true anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's hard for a lot of people to hear and because they have this such a rooted definition of like, you know, the people who are professionals in this game are, you know, you're only going to be the best at the game. Yep. And while the best of the game should also rise to the top, and I think that they do through mm-hmm. the MPL these days, um, the definition of a pro magic player is more about who is able to really brand themselves mm-hmm. and become a personality. Uh, I think that, you know, the people who have the most success on the Star City Games Tour are the people who are really able to utilize their success in the game through other means. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, there's there's just not much money in in winning <laughs> Magic tournaments. You, it's just not a, an avenue that you should try to go down. You know, you just like... it's You have to be Seth Manfield if you're mm-hmm. really... Seth Manfield's level of skill to be able to just like really make sure that you are, you know, earning enough money, getting enough top eights to keep doing it. right yeah. through through purely winnings alone. You have to go through other avenues of right um, of the game, and I think that people are kind of slowly adjusting to that, and kind of even aren't really comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. But the world that we live in today is more about um, you know who's putting themselves out there. Uh, who is, you know, doing the most for like, the community. Yeah. Like, look at Jerry Thompson, for example. Yep. He's a, the the golden example of what I believe a professional Magic player should be. Because yep. not only has he won a Pro Tour and gotten really close another time, uh, but he uh, he's done so much through all of the content that he makes, the his podcast, his... Um, his community uh, around he's, the podcast. He's, yeah. yeah, the community that he's developed around the podcast, The uh, his social media presence. The Arena Deckless um, Twitter now. Yeah. Like a week old, but right. he's super important. Jerry is doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and I think that there there have been like, you know, entities in Magic. Like if I'm if I had to pick my all-time favorite Magic players, mm-hmm. I'm not really picking from the best of the best. Like people talk about John Finkel, Kai Buddha, these people who are just insane in the game. Yeah. My my top picks for just like all around best magic players are the players who not only have been able to have a lot of success in the game because they're clearly wicked smart and, and mm-hmm. good at the game, but also have been able to just become the a personality through the game. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so my top picks are like the the S tier in my mind are the LSVs, yep. Brian Kibler, and now Jerry Thompson is is getting up there mm-hmm. in my mind. These are the people who have really saw what was important in terms of having success and making a career out of this game, yeah. and really utilized all that stuff. And that kind of thing 
I think is what Wizards is trying to promote more of. That makes sense. You know, because there's just not really an infrastructure for for doing that much through the game with just, you know, the tournament results. Sure. You, it, there's just too much inconsistency. You're not going to do well all of the time. Um, you know, if you're good enough, you can definitely metagame well and spike occasionally and have good results and right. all that stuff. But, but nobody top 32s every pro tour. Of course not. Yeah, and the thought of that is, you know, ludicrous. Like, yeah. the best players in the world have, like, you know, maybe close to a 70% win rate. At, if at the they're, GP level. Like, at the GP level, yeah. but, you know, nobody has that win rate at the um, at the pro tour level. Right. And, you know, so like a 60% win rate, you're just, you're just not going to do well every tournament. Right. And it, it does feel a little odd that one of the avenues that they are using, that they're choosing to reward people who are embracing this new paradigm, mm-hmm. um, and like kind of specifically through streaming. You know, not yeah, too many podcast right. hosts got invited to this. Yeah, we, <laughs> you know, I don't. Looks know like we're on the wrong gig here. I don't know where our envelopes are. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, so you know, they specifically chosen to reward streamers, and it does feel a little bit odd that the way they're choosing to reward streamers you know like like sponsored streams like that makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense yeah yeah yeah. choosing to reward streamers by giving them tournament winnings yeah does feel a little bit odd to me yeah i'm not you know i'm not saying by any means that it's a perfect system right right and i think that we from this point have a lot of room and ways in which we can grow and learn and everything Mm -hmm. so um yeah but Anyways, yeah. And I, I do think that it's also important to note that, like, I'm not particularly excited to watch this tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a format that hopefully I don't have to care about. Right, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't really want to play this two-deck no-sideboards format in right. the future, so watching people play a format that I don't play is not interesting to me. Um and the things that I want to watch are, you know, I want to, the, the, the MPL is really exciting to me because it hopefully gives me an opportunity to watch Javier Dominguez play against Reed Duke and that sort of thing. Like, I want to see the, the best of the best doing things that I wouldn't think of and playing these matches in, 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 and seeing what they would do. I'm not, like, super interested in seeing a Hearthstone streamer who plays sponsored magic streams playing against my pros. Because yeah. if my pros win, it's like, well, obviously they won their way better. If my pros lose, it's like, well, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we do feel invested. Yeah. Uh, so so that's a little weird to me, but I completely acknowledge and understand like the need for wizards to bring in these audiences that are not us. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to watch lots of magic content regardless of how they put it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's new audiences. We're they, hooked. Yeah, We're good. I mean, know. <laughs> like, they know they've got me. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got, I've got a bunch of money in, like, like Star City credit right now. Like, right. I'm not getting out without, right, like, right, spending right. all this on single. Like, you know, I'm in. I'm in. Um, yeah, for sure. So. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, I don't know. I I guess my general takeaways was that the watching the reaction that unfolded on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, specifically was kind of disheartening to me. Yeah, because you know, just like the general negative attitude of just like this is the first time this kind of thing has ever happened, and we're already you know really poo pooing it. Yeah, uh, really hard. Um, and then also you know the toxicity really carried over to. Uh, 
you know, invitees getting harassed. And on that's Twitter. inappropriate. That's fundamentally uh, broken. Yeah. That's and that's not a way to interact. with That people. was fundamentally broken for sure. And, you know, obviously shouldn't have happened. But I do want to recognize how stuff like that is catalyzed by the overall negativity that mm-hmm. that everybody, I think, really contributed to um, towards the the announcement and everything. Yeah. So constructive criticism is definitely warranted, I think, in this instance, because I think that there were a lot of things that didn't make much sense mm-hmm. and could have definitely been done better. Um, and, of course, there were people who... I believe deserved to be invited who didn't end up getting invited. But you can also um, say that without saying like, but, and, and this is, this is moot because now Caleb Durward is in it. Right. But yeah. you know, I can say, I really wish Caleb was in this tournament. Of I course. think he deserves to be there yeah. without having to end that sentence with like X person. Yeah. I can't, I can't believe, believe that Caleb didn't get in when blah, blah, blah yeah. got in. You just you don't know. need to say that part. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It's not relevant. It's not important and it's not kind. Yeah. So, Right. Why, why just be nasty? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I guess that's kind of my two cents on on the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know. And and I, I, you know, my initial reaction was like highly negative, and I'm still not sold on this. I honestly, I'm just pretty sure I'm not going to enjoy watching this thing. Yeah, it's so, not for you know, me. Right. While I do want to address all of the social things, I, you know, I'm also not that excited about this tournament. Agree. I think that the format kind of sucks. <laughs> Yeah, I, it doesn't <laughs> sound like magic to me. Right. But yeah. and, and and maybe part of that is also a, a fear of change, too. Mm-hmm. The kind of magic that I like is best of three. Adjust yeah, yeah. my deck between each game with my sideboard. Right. I I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I was talking with, with Lee this weekend about why I like sideboarding so much in Standard, because there's no Haymaker sideboard cards. You're adjusting the size of your deck and the appropriateness of your answers in a way that's yeah. very similar to limited decks. I love that part of the game. Yeah. Uh, and I love seeing how people that are better than me do it. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, and so missing that, and then this weird, like, two-deck thing, it just doesn't sound like a thing that I really love mm-hmm. watching. Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, I'm sure I'll watch some of it. The other thing that probably bears some addressing is the method of qualification for people who were not invited via MPL or the special invites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this grinding into a set position on by, through Magic uh, Arena. Through Magic Arena. Top the, eight of the constructed mythic players ladder. Yeah. on ladder in, in Magic Arena are going to get invited. Uh, Which is, it's good that they gave an avenue. This avenue of qualification, I think, is just bad yeah um this is exactly the method that hearthstone did away with uh-huh. because it was promoting really unhealthy play styles and rewarding just toxic sorts of uh behaviors or maybe not toxic behaviors but 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 it incentivizes toxic lifestyles toxic lifestyles yeah exactly yeah. It, it incentivizes behavior that is not good uh, not healthy, right? And people aren't going to sleep for the for the fifty hours leading up to the end of the um, right. Yeah, and that's that sounds really bad. It's yeah. really bad, and it's <laughs> this isn't like a. I, I think magic when it is not tournament based loses a fundamental piece of its soul 
Like, qualifying via tournament is, like, an important part of Magic, and it lets you say, like, I can spend this Saturday trying to qualify for this Pro Tour. Sure. If my PTQ lasts all of February, (laughs) I don't want that. Right, right, right. Spiking is, like, an important part of Magic, and I I guess they haven't, like, removed spiking from it, because you're really just trying to get the best win rate in the last, like, 25 hours of the thing. It does, yeah. I feel like I know so little, and... And that that's another one of my complaints about that system is that everybody knows so little about yeah. the, you know, like, can we see the mathematical formula that dictates the the way that you actually pass other people in rankings and in actual ladder? Like, no, yeah. nobody knows what that, that looks like. Um, and you feel so in the dark when you're playing, too, because you're like, say you're like 10th or whatever, mm-hmm. and you like win, and then you're still 10th, and then you like win again, and you're still 10th. You're like, what, what's going on? You just like, <laughs> you have no idea, right? <laughs> That it, people have brought up the fact that they believe that that's also can be psychologically harming, mm-hmm. you know, where you know you, you're just you're you've dedicated your entire month to doing this thing that you just have so little information on throughout yeah. the entire time, and then and then say you finish, you know, you the 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 time ends and you, it reads eighth on your thing, and then you get an email later saying that you ended up like. 15th or whatever because <laughs> sorry I'm because just, of course it did <laughs> because of course right <laughs> you know um oh. like uh zan at the end of the season for the previous one he his his thing told him that he was like 200th or whatever like mm-hmm. mythic he's like congratulations you finished 200 mythic on on like in his arena yeah and then he got an email that said uh, your corrected ranking was 437. That's a lot worse. Yeah, oh, right. And the, so we were blown away at how different it was. And then, and then they sent another email, and they're like, "Your updated correct <laughs> corrected standings is actually 537." Oh <laughs> and we were like, "Excuse me, people are going to be people are using this system to." Uh. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully they're using this as a placeholder, and then once Arena is a little more fleshed out, they have, like, a qualifying series or something as part of it. Maybe. But it sounds like none of it works anyways, so... Right, yeah. So, I I would say that I'm pretty concerned about all that. And honestly, I, I considered doing this, um, making this a tweet, and I'm, I still might do it, but I I really wanted to reach out to the community to interview people who are planning on dedicating their month to grinding the ladder. Okay. I really want to talk to them when they start and then talk to them in the middle of it and then want to talk to them at the end of it. Just to just to see yeah. you know, I, I feel like I can get a pretty good read on how people are doing. <laughs> um and I just want to see what that process is like for them. Dude, do it and record your interviews and we'll we'll cut it into a special podcast episode. You know, maybe. So I, I'll probably make that tweet after this episode just to yeah. be like, "Hey, if you are planning on dedicating a lot of time, I want to talk to you." Yeah, and if you're listening to this and you're planning on dedicating yeah, a lot of hit time, me up. get in touch. Um I think that could be a really cool study on, you know, the concerns that all of the people that everybody has voiced yeah. about this. And and I think this is my worst Part. Like, this is the thing that I find the worst of the whole thing, is yeah. this qualification system, I think, is bad for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Right. I also I like the like the overall system of, like, being able to qualify through Arena. Definitely. I think that's cool Great. and good. But top eight, like, really? We couldn't have done, like, top 64, so at least it's reasonable. Wow. <laughs> you know or, what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Or top sixty four gets invited to a tournament that top eight sure. gets to play. Sure, in, you know what something. I mean? 
Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, this all comes at a time where we have no idea still how we qualify for the whatever the Pro Tour is now. We, you know, we still have no information about what is replacing PTQs. Right. Uh, it just doesn't exist yet. We are well into what would have been the next PPTQ season, and we've got nothing. Yeah. And that's really frustrating. Right. Um, and then to see this thing, like, the only opportunity we got is grind to top eight. Everybody play arena a bunch. Yeah. Or top eight of... of, of, of a Magic Fest, a Grand Prix at a Magic Fest. And, oh yeah, for, for qualify the, for, the for the Pro Tour, pro tour yeah, yeah. that way, and those are like the only avenues to get to anything bigger, and that doesn't feel fun or right or like yeah. you know, it's fun to grind. It's fun to have a target in place, and these like you have to be, you have to hit these like almost you know, top eighting a Grand Prix. You've done it once, yeah. Other like it still feels like kind of an unattainable goal a lot of the time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's uh, it's 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 tough, and a lot of people are gonna try really hard and never get there. You yeah. know what I mean? Top eight of these fifteen hundred fifteen hundred person tournaments. This is such a small number. Yeah, just um, give us give us a shot. Give us some series to grind. Like that's what that's why the SCG tour is so fun. Is because mm-hmm. you know I played a couple. I've got some points. I'm almost qual- well. I'm over halfway qualified for the invitational. I'm I'm gonna get there. Like right. as yeah, long yeah. as I keep playing reasonably well and yeah. doing okay. Give us something. Yeah. Star City does a lot of things right, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So. so we've talked too much about this stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we... <laughs> um, for sure. We don't want to not hit our Patreon question of the week. We will try to, you know, do this. Yeah. Do, do, do a good service to this. So Panama Kid asks, all right, I'm finally in a position to ask one of these. Here's a basic thing I don't really know. I would like to have Duress in my main deck. Reed Duke, in his article, Thought Sees You, says that in order to use discard spells, your deck needs to want to trade one for one. When is this true? How do I really know if I want to trade one for one? Also, is it true versus any deck, or do I have to switch if, for example, my opponent's deck wants to trade one for one more? Mm -hmm. So my theory on duresses in general is that there's two purposes. Yeah. You've got your Jund duresses. Yep. Which are, yes, we want to trade one for one. Right. Um, and then my individual cards are more powerful than your individual cards. Dark Confidant is going to draw me a bunch of cards that keep one for one. And you, Liliana the Veil, wins the game on her own, almost on her own. Blood yep. Raid Elf is, is great. You can also use them because you want to trade one for one with their specific cards because you're doing a powerful thing that only gets affected by a couple of things your opponent is doing. And this yeah. is the Dark Depths Thoughtseize deck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to take your Diabolic Edict because none of your other cards matter right. against this thing that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. And that that's a deck that doesn't care that it's one for oneing because it, card count is irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, I think like the fundamental philosophy here that Panama Kaidos is looking for is that you'll know if you want to one for one mm-hmm. if you, the axis that you're trying to win on mm-hmm. is value. So if you want the games to go long and you want to, at the end of the game, have generated more value than your opponent then those each of those one for ones benefits you because mm-hmm. you're you're trading one of your resources for one of their resources and you're planning on having more resources than your opponent. Yes. So that is where you would know that your deck wants to one for one is that the axis that you're trying to win on is 
uh, value. Mm-hmm. But the the insanely incredible thing about magic is that there's many axes that you can decide to plan around, right? Yep. There's the other axis of... It's harder to quantify because I think it breaks up into a lot of subcategories, but uh, aggressive strategies and combo strategies. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the strategies that uh, are particularly devastated by a, a certain type of card. So like for a spell-based combo deck, they want to get rid of your counter spells so that they can win. And for like a dark decks, a dark depths style strategy, they want to get rid of your specific answers to what they're doing mm-hmm. so that they can win. Um, and even an aggressive deck, I think, falls into the same category where um, they're doing something very specific and you sometimes have very specific answers to it, like wrath effects. Um, like, you know, typically aggressive decks want, like, sometimes sideboard uh, dresses because they want to make sure that they can really nab your set of the wreckage yeah. wrath effect or whatever. But yeah, so I think the answer to the, you know, specific question about when do I know that I want a one-for-one is that if the axis that your deck is built around is going to be the value axis. Yep. Right. And then the picking and choosing part of the the duress slash thoughtsies becomes much more relevant if we're interacting along a basis of like, I only care about a specific type of card in your hand. Yeah. And that trading one for one and getting value thing you know, that there really are those two different dimensions of Thoughtseize type cards. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and, and yeah, like, I think these Dark Depths kind of decks are really not at all what Reed is talking about no, in no, his no. article. Yeah. Um, and and so if if we're mostly talking about Jun-style decks, then, yeah, I think that's the important metric is, like, mm-hmm. you want to figure out that your deck has those individually powerful cards that get value on their own. So I want to trade off the rest of my cards for the rest of your cards and leave one thing standing. Yeah. It's funny because I keep on remembering back to uh, the Amazonian play anything draft Mm -hmm. where these super fundamental elements of magic were so clearly laid out in that Amazonian draft. In pure... Yeah, it was just just pure cards. Pure combo magic. Yeah, yeah. So you... Right. Like, you can imagine all of the... um, All the cards in a Jun-style deck are inherently like the divinations of the Amazonian draft, Mm -hmm. where uh, Liliana's worth multiple cards, Colgan's Command is worth multiple cards. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so many of your cards are worth multiple cards, so you want your one-for-ones to make sure that, you know, Bloodbraid Elf is going to be worth multiple cards, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you want to be able to one-for-one, you know, and then and then you can lean on the Nexus. Um, but also, you know, kind of to answer the the last part of this question, uh, is it true versus any deck, or do I have to switch if, for example, opponent's deck wants it more? Um, those kinds of discard cards can still be very good in... Um, mid-range scenarios as long as you think that you're going to be able to set up trading those cards for your opponent's value to cards. value cards mm-hmm. so if you can thought seize your opponent's liliana that's much better than than playing it and edicting your creature and then you're dealing with it yeah. so for the two for one you know if you thought seize your opponent's uh, bloodbraid off it's much better than any other scenario mm-hmm. um so it's you know your opponent also wanting to one for one doesn't necessarily mean that your thought seizes are bad but people generally do lean towards sideboarding out some of those because the other problem with those cards is that they become dead in the late game. Yep. And these fair deck mirrors... Uh, you can't have dead cards. ...typically are going to go into the late game 
and you want all of your top decks in the late game to be powered, yep. not a discard card for your opponent's empty hand. Right. Yeah. There's a reason that these decks play Treetop Village and Raging Ravine, and it's not that they're like great cards that kill your opponent right. really well. It's because when nobody has anything, right. they're yeah. a fine draw off the top yeah, of your yeah, deck, yeah. and then they can do something. Right. Oh, a Raging Ravine. Amazing. <laughs> In the Jun Mirror, you draw a Raging Ravine when you're both top decking, and you're like, I win, I did it! <laughs> <laughs> this is it! You're going to have to trade a Lightning Bolt for this or die. Right. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so. so, yeah. Yeah. So, Here we go. yeah. I mean, we talked about Thought Seasons plenty of this episode, so I thought this would be a good question. Great. You know, Thought Perfect. Erasure and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we we have talked plenty about all this stuff, I guess. Yeah, um, long episode, but uh, yeah, some <laughs> lots of, lots somehow to talk about. really just got talking about this mythic invitation. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. Um, but uh, but you know, yeah. So yeah, awesome. Thanks to everybody so much for listening. Uh, if you want to find us online, you can go to mdggrindcast.com where you will find links to all of our episodes, to Collins' one-on-one coaching services. Um, you can also find links to our Patreon there. Or go to patreon.com slash mdggrindcast. Really, really would appreciate the support. You know, this is what we're doing. We're going to keep doing this. Yeah. It's going to keep being free, but um, if you want to come hang out in the Discord and give us some support, we'd really appreciate it. Find us on Twitter. I'm tweeting from. Uh, I am actually changing my Twitter handle to at ccr underscore grindcast because oh, nice. I have, you know, used it as a personal Twitter and I don't want <laughs> yeah. it to be confusing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll probably also like set up a, a podcast or a Twitter for the podcast itself at the old handle of mtg underscore grindcast. Um, you can also find Collins on Twitter at Collins Mullen. And yeah, that's it from us. Yep. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. Peace. Peace.